My friends, good day to you. We are in uh, the book of Nehemiah, uh, so you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. If you need a Bible, we have some available right outside the door. We'd even bring it to you if you put your hand up. Someone will notice that and we'll bring you a Bible. And then you can keep it if you don't have one of your own. We'd love for you to have it so you can start digging into it on a regular basis. Uh, We are in Nehemiah chapter 5. And as the Lord allows, we'll make our way through that particular chapter today. As we've been studying through the book of Nehemiah, we've been looking at the challenges that a godly leader is facing as he's trying to lead the people in what God has called them to do. And Nehemiah was faced with a whole bunch of things that would come his way. Attempts, if you will, by the enemy, ultimately the devil, by the enemy to derail him and the people from accomplishing what God wanted them to accomplish. And so we've looked at things like the mocking and the jeering that came at the Jewish people. We've looked at the accusations and the threats. What are you trying to lead a revolt against the king? We're going to tell the king on you. Those kinds of threats that came. We looked at the schemes and and even the plan for this all-out attack to come against the Jewish people. And one thing after the other, it seems, was coming against Nehemiah. But Nehemiah, very solidly, consistently, his response was to keep his eyes on the Lord and to remind the people to do the same thing. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Follow the Lord. We're going to accomplish this. These things are going to distract us, but we're not going to, they're going to try to distract us, but we're not going to let them. We'll just keep bringing them to the Lord. Keep working hard and keep doing uh, what the Lord has called us to do. Now last week, for the first time, we were introduced to a different form of opposition. So oftentimes the opposition that comes against us as we're trying to serve the Lord It comes from without. It's people of the world or people of this or whatever it may be that comes from without and just sort of knocks us a little bit and hopefully not, but can knock us off of trial or or trail. But sometimes the opposition isn't from without. And sometimes the opposition is from within. And we were first introduced to that in the book of Nehemiah, an example of that in Nehemiah chapter 4. And you may recall from verse 10 of the chapter, it says, In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And you recall that Judah was the biggest and the largest of all of the tribes of Israel. They were the strongest. They were the ones with the great history. They had kings like David and kings like Solomon. They were the ones with the great future. We know that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. And here is the big, the strong, the leader, if you will, the natural leader that everyone just is going to look to, and they're weak. And they're discouraged. And they feel they can't go on. Well, that's discouragement. And that's one of, the, one of the forms of opposition that comes from within each of us. So we're plugging away. We're trying to do what the Lord is going to do. We're dealing with all this stuff that is on the outside. But then we've got to deal with the stuff that is on the inside as well. The stuff that when we're in sort of that secret quiet place that is leading us to say, you know, just give up. It's too hard. It's never going to get accomplished. And the, the people of Israel, uh, Nehemiah in particular, had to deal with that. Here's a people, they were becoming exhausted, they were becoming discouraged. The stress was t- and the toll of the labor was taking its effect on them, and they just wanted to give up, feeling that they couldn't go on anymore. But it was, that was just one more thing that Nehemiah had to deal with. One more thing that he'd have to give over to the Lord and encourage the people, you know what, give that to the Lord as well, and let Him strengthen you for the work that is before us. Well, today now, we come to chapter 5. And I think, it, think of it sort of like, remember Wizard of Oz? I know my friend Alyssa does. So that's her favorite, what is that, a show, I guess? 
um, something like that, a movie of some sorts. Well, in The Wizard of Oz, you may recall that the wizard there and behind the curtain, and you see what's really going on behind the curtain. Well, Nehemiah sort of pulls the curtain back a little bit on the schemings of the devil or the way that the devil is going to scheme against the people of God. And we look at, he brings opposition in various forms. He makes fun of you or he'll throw accusations against you or maybe he'll plan an attack against you in some form or another. Uh, the darts, if you will, will come and we'll start to feel discouraged and like I can't do it. And that's all sort of the, the manipulations there of the devil. Well, here now, as we come into chapter 5, we see sort of the inner workings of the enemy as he's scheming against us because his desire is to do everything to hinder the work of God. And here in chapter 5, we'll see the old adage, you know the old adage, if you can't beat him, join him. That the devil now will make his way, if you will, onto the inside of the camp. And he'll begin to tear down the work that God is trying to do, not from without, but now from within. In chapter 5, let's read through the opening paragraph of chapter 5. It says this, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were many, for there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. And yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Now the context of things in chapter 5 is that a severe food shortage has begun to significantly impact the people uh, of the city of Jerusalem. And we can see that there revealed in verse 2 where it says, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Now there's a variety of reasons that are either stated or alluded to in that paragraph that I read as to the cause of the food shortage. The first, verse 2, it says, for we are many. And so it seems that there is a population explosion of some form, probably with Nehemiah returning to the area and the entourage that came with him, and so too many people in the land, not enough food to provide for those people. Verse 3 seems to be a second contributing factor is that there's a famine. doesn't seem, it states. Look, it says we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. So there's a population explosion, there's a famine in the land as well. And then notice the third reason for the food shortage. This is found in verse 4, and it's that resources that would be going toward uh, planting the fields and so on, are instead going toward paying their taxes. This is conveyed, I think, pretty well in the King James where it says, there were also those that said, we've borrowed money for the king's tribute and that upon our lands and our vineyards. So now they're borrowing on their property in order to pay off their taxes. How many of you love your tax man? We have one here. I won't tell you who he is because we love our tax man and we don't want to give him any trouble. But a variety of reasons. Too many people, unfavorable conditions, the inability to focus themselves on growing food, all of them are causing a food shortage. And notice what the response is. Look at verse 1 again. It says that there is a great outcry of the people. Now the idea that is trying to be conveyed there is, is really twofold. The first is the intensity of the cry. That's the idea of the great. There's a real intensity of the cry. 
And as far as the outcry itself, the idea is a lament. So what this means is that there's a real intense lament, and laments are addressed toward ultimately toward God. So the people are crying out to God in a great way, God, what is going on? Did you bring us? We were better. Remember when they said to Moses, we were better when we were slaves? Years back in the book of Exodus, as they're wandering around, and those early books of the Bible, we were better when we were slaves. Well, that's essentially what these people are saying. We don't have food to feed our kids. We're selling our kids in order to make ends meet in one way or another. Lord, what are you doing? There's a great outcry. That's the idea of the phrase there. Notice the circumstances they're facing. We see in verse 2 that they're starving to death. So they're praying that God would provide them food that we may eat and keep alive. Sometimes I pray that God would provide me food, but I'll be quite frank, it's never been to the point that it would keep me alive. It's, Lord, give me some food so I won't be cranky. And things. my wife says that, you need to eat something, you're cranky, or whatever. It's, give me some food so I won't be cranky. Not, give me some food so that I can keep alive here. Well, that's what they're praying. Number two, notice verses three and four. It says that they're actually mortgaging their fields and borrowing money so that they can figure out to pay the exorbitant prices for the food that is available during this period of a famine. And then lastly, the final reason why there's such a great outcry on the part of these Jewish people here in Jerusalem is because things had gotten so bad that they began to sell their children off into slavery. And the idea is not so that dad can eat. The idea is I can't afford to raise this kid anymore. And so they would sell the kid off into slavery and he'd be cared for, if you will, by another and work for them and then the rest of us will sort of go on. Could you possibly imagine how bad things must be to come to the point where you say, I'm going to sell my kids off. It's bad times in Jerusalem here. And here's the thing that causes Nehemiah to be so angry. If you look at verse 6, it says in verse 6 that Nehemiah was very angry. Well, here's the thing that causes him to be so angry. The reason why things are getting as bad as they are is because of the Jewish people themselves. It's because of what one brother is doing to another brother. That's the reason why it's getting so bad. You look at that in verse 1. It says, There arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Now, it wasn't their fault. They didn't cause the famine in the land. And it wasn't their fault that the king was charging taxes that were as high as they were. But what was their fault, the Jewish brothers, what was their fault is that they were taking advantage of their brethren's difficult circumstances. So the scenario would be something like this, where you're, you're real hungry, let's say. You don't have food or whatever. And so you go over to your neighbor's house, you go over to your brother in the church's house, and you say, look, my family doesn't have any groceries. We're having a difficult time. And he says, well, you know what? I, I have some extra bread and some peanut butter and jelly. And you'll be like, great, that sounds perfect. It's better than anything that I could possibly imagine. And he says, well, I'll trade it to you. Just give me that nice car you have out there. Now you're stuck in a situation where you know that a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for a car is not a fair deal, but what are you going to do? You've got to feed your kids. And so you're trading off your car to get peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. It's a bit exorbitant, but with your family in such a bad place, you do what you have to do. And these guys, they know this, and so brother begins to rip off brother to the extent that the circumstances get so bad, people begin to sell their children into slavery. No wonder Nehemiah the leader of all of this. No wonder he is angry when he hears about it. Look at verse 6. It says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. So not only was he angry, but he was 
very angry. That, that term there, very angry, it's one term in the Hebrew, and it's designed to be stated in this way. It means to be hot, to be on fire, to be furious with anger. So Nehemiah is furious with anger. We see a similar circumstance in chapter 13, where Nehemiah begins to clock people on the head. Uh, so he had a little anger problem here. But many times we think, well, I'm a Christian, I shouldn't get angry. The reality is this, some things should make you angry. Some things should make you angry. The Apostle Paul said, be angry and do not sin. The idea being that you can get angry, and I would say you should get angry, but you should never come to the point of where you're sinning as a result of that anger. Ripping people off, even in legal dealings, there was nothing illegal about what they were doing, but ripping people off, even in legal dealings, to the point where they need to sell their children into slavery, that should make every one of us in this room angry. Injustice in our communities, in our nation, and around the world, that should make us angry. The Lord got angry. We see in Matthew chapter 21, when he went into the temple one particular day, there was a bunch of people that were in the, the temple, the whole system within the temple, He's encountering corrupt, corruption of the money changers there in the temple. And it says that it made him so angry, Jesus, that he began to freak out. It doesn't say freak out, uh, but that's the general idea. And he began to overturn the tables there in the temple. So everybody's money and everything that is laid out on the table is now laying on the floor. And people are like, what are you doing, man? And he's running around turning the next one before anyone knows what is going on. It says that people were trying to carry things. And so... I, they have stuff in their hands, and it says Jesus is knocking stuff out of people's hands. He's going crazy here because he's angry. Why is he so mad? The reason why he is so mad is because these corrupt money changers and all of these people that were selling their wares, I think of it as like, like outside of a stadium when you go to a ball game. you got all these people that are going all over the place selling their trinkets. That's what's happening in the temple. But the reason why it made Jesus so angry is because the people are ripping off the worshipers. And so the worshipers come to the temple, I've got to come into this place and deal with these people. And now they're frustrated by the whole process of going to worship the Lord. And they're taking their anger, their frustration toward these people, and now they're angry and they're mad at God. And Jesus is like, this is wrong. And it needs to stop. And so he gets angry. And he should be angry. Certain things should make us angry. Anger is not the problem. That what we're getting angry about perhaps is the problem. Some say, good, because I'm always angry. Well, what are you getting angry about? Are you getting angry about the fact that things aren't working out in your circumstances the way you want them to? Are you getting angry about this and that, and that lady cut me off? Those things aren't supposed to be making you angry. You've got to deal with that. It's the injustices of things that should make us angry. Sin and injustice, this misrepresentation of God, it should anger us and move us to action. And so here we have Nehemiah, very angry. As we see in verse 7, notice what he does. He takes counsel with himself. It says, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you're exacting interest each from your brother. And I held a great assembly against them and I said to them, we, are, we as far as we are able, we have bought back our Jewish brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and they could not find a word to say. So it says that Nehemiah there, very angry, but he takes counsel with himself. That's a, a term, a phrase, which simply means to stop, to consider, and to think through your next step. And that's great wisdom. How many of us, I'm sure, we could all, 
At one point or time in another, we can tell of a time where we got ourselves into trouble because we became angry and then we acted too quickly. And we became angry, whether the right reason or the wrong reason, but we became angry and we acted too, too quickly. So in our anger, we said something, perhaps without thinking, or we wrote that scathing email and we hit send without taking some time to cool down. Or we exploded, perhaps, at our boss and we walked off the job only to be driving down the road and thinking, what did I just do? Am I crazy? And sometimes in our anger, we act too quickly. There's a, a statement somebody made. It said, anger causes us to lose the ability of self-consultation. That anger causes us to lose the ability of self-consultation. We need to be careful about acting in haste when we are angry. And Nehemiah demonstrates great wisdom in taking some time, thinking things through, and then praying and approaching the and then approaching these things responsibly. So it kind of goes like this. Lord, what these people are doing is wrong. It's a violation of your word. Lord, it makes me so mad. Lord, I just want to... Lord, what would you have me to do? You see, just taking that time to consult with the Lord through this allows us to make a good decision as we're moving forward. It, takes us, it gives us time to calm down, to think clearly, and then to seek the Lord and let Him to guide us. Now remember... Nehemiah is going to discipline these people, these nobles, these officials. The whole purpose of discipline is to teach the person that is being disciplined. It's interesting, the words discipline and teach, they come from the same root word. Not in the English, it doesn't appear that way, but in the original languages, they come from the same root word, which is the root word, the same word where we get the word disciple. So Nehemiah, we, whenever we correct, we want to teach people. We want to help them to grow so that they don't do this thing again. And so Nehemiah could have freaked out. He could have went crazy on them. Or Nehemiah could have calmed down and taught them, corrected them, led them in the way that they should go. He could go out and beat up the bad guys. Or he could confront them in a way that's going to lead them to change. A way that would grow them and show them the error of their ways. Lead them in a new path. And that's what he does. So it says he takes counsel with himself. He stops, thinks things through, prays them through. And then he confronts, also found there, in verse 7, then he confronts the nobles and officials and he brings charges, it says, against them. Notice what he says in verse 7. He says, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. Uh, I'm sorry, he took counsel with uh, brought charges against the nobles and officials. And I said to them, you're exacting interest, each from his brother. And then I held a great assembly against them and said to them, and so on. You're exacting interest, each of you against your brother. Leviticus chapter 25, as well as some other places in the Old Testament, it makes it very clear. It's interesting. If you go back and read Leviticus 25, it's almost as if it was tailor-made for this incident that uh, Nehemiah is going through. Let me read some of this to you. It was written over a thousand years earlier, but nonetheless it says this, If your brother becomes poor and he cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though you were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him food for profit. I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. It goes on a little further in that passage. It says, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired servant and as a sojourner. You shall fear the Lord. Pretty clear, isn't it? 
speaks exactly to the scenario that these guys are going through. The Word of God is alive. And exacting interest against your brother, it was forbidden for the Jewish people. And doing so to such an extent that the result is poverty and desolation, to the extent where the only viable alternative is to sell your kids into slavery, well, I think it's a fair statement to say that's just despicable. And these guys don't seem to care about it at all. And so Nehemiah, he calls a great assembly together against these officials. We see that there, uh, I think it's verse 8. And he begins to charge them with their offense. He says in verse 8 to them, look, we're doing everything we can to bring the Jewish people back from slavery and captivity. That's where they were in Babylon during that basically a hundred year period of time. We're doing everything we can to bring people back to a place of freedom. And we bring them here and you in turn put them into slavery and into captivity. Do you see how messed up that is? This is crazy talk, what is going on here. In the house of God, the people of God. What is going on? And Nehemiah is angry about this. He says, what you're doing is not good. That's another way of saying, what you're doing is bad. And you shouldn't do it, he says to them. So he calls out their behavior. Nehemiah looks to a group of people and he says, what you're doing is sin. Now, how do you feel about that? You feel comfortable with that? I feel very comfortable telling these people that they're sinning. I don't like so much when people call me out for my sin. But sometimes we need to be called out for our sin because sometimes we don't think clearly. We don't see clearly. Sometimes we just have to kind of, if we did, if we kind of pulled ourselves back and just kind of could look at our lives, we would call it sin too. But because we're in the midst of it or we come up with our own rationalization, whatever it may be, we don't notice it. And Nehemiah is the leader of these people. And so somebody's got to call these people out. And he does so publicly. I don't think we need to call out everybody's sin publicly. But in this particular instance, you have public officials that are sinning in a public way and they're setting an example to the public that is observing. And so these people need to be called out for that sin publicly as well so that no, everyone else will learn not to sin. And so he gathers them together, everyone together there, and he calls them out for their sin. Notice also in verse 9, Nehemiah reveals to us, to them certainly, but to us from observing from afar, the heart of the problem. And the heart of any sin in our lives, notice, is a lack of the fear of God. He says, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? The implication is you're doing what you're doing because you don't fear our God. Why would these people rip off their neighbors in this way? Because there's no fear of the Lord. There was no sense that the righteous judge would one day right these wrongs and that he would hold all of the people that were involved accountable for their injustices. There was no sense of that. There was no sense that God was going to honor His Word. Remember Leviticus 25? That He would honor His Word and judge those that were violating it. And because there was no fear of the Lord, these nobles and these officials did whatever they want, even if that meant sinning, because there was no fear of the Lord. All that mattered to them was whether they were well-to-do and whether their bank account was being padded. Now, I think there's two categories of sin. And honestly, I don't think I could go to the Bible and point and give you an example of it, but just in the practical of working out in life, I think there's two categories of sin. There's the driving down the road, someone cuts you off, and something comes out of your mouth category of sin. Amen? Shame on you. I used to deal with that, but I'm much further along now. And then there's the chasing after them with your car for 50 miles 
so that when they finally stop, you can let them know what you're thinking category of sin. And though I know that all sin is sin, and all sin ultimately drove Christ to the cross and so on, there's a difference between those two sins. There's the momentary indiscretion, and then there's the willful disobedience. And why do we have the momentary indiscretions? The most amazing thing, you come from church, you just had a great time, the Lord was talking to you hard, and everything was great, and you might get to Parkway Avenue. That's, that's a block away from here. And all of a sudden it comes out. And you're thinking, Lord, I ruined that week. Got to wait till next week to be good with you again kind of thing. You know, and there's the momentary indiscretions. And the reason for that is because we're unsanctified sinners. We're trying. We're growing. We're submitting ourselves to the Lord. But we're still nonetheless unsanctified sinners. And sometimes the old man comes out. All right? That's the momentary indiscretions. But why do we willfully rebel against the ways of God? Well, the answer is because we have deduced in our mind, God, I don't care what you have to say about this or what you will think about this. And so we think, you know what, I'm going to do what I'm going to do and I'll deal with whatever happens later. I'll deal with it. But I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And that's a dangerous place to be. And that's where these people are here in the book of Nehemiah. That's where they are. And that attitude, it demonstrates an absence of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, someone has said, is the key to living the Christian life successfully. And when we talk about the fear of the Lord, we're not talking about being afraid of Him, but we're talking about being fearful of displeasing Him or causing Him grief. Because the Lord has been so good to us and so gracious and so kind and so merciful to us, how could our desire be anything other than loving Him and seeking to obey Him? And when we fear the Lord, that's the attitude of our hearts. And these guys, they had lost sight of that. And sadly, look at verse 9. The result of that, among other things, is look what it allows the enemy to do. It allows the enemy, ultimately, an opportunity to blaspheme God. And so it says there in verse 9, the thing you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God and to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Essentially saying, oh yeah, you're God. If your God is so good, how come you don't even obey Him? They're taunting us. They're taunting our relationship with God. They're taunting Him. And the fear of the Lord should cause us to never want to do anything or be the reason why people feel justified in rejecting the Lord or blaspheming the Lord. They lost that. So Nehemiah continues in verse 10. He says, Moreover, I and my brothers, my servants, are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. So notice this. Not only does Nehemiah tell them to stop what they're doing, but he also tells them as much as possible to make it right what they have done. And so he makes the point there in the middle of that passage. He says, return to them this very day. So Nehemiah is not only asking them to feel bad about their sin, or even, hey, you know what, from this point on, don't do it anymore. That's not even what he's asking them. But he's asking them to go back and to make it right. So notice he tells them, return what you've taken, he says. He says, return the fields, return the vineyards, return the olive orchards. Don't just feel bad about it, but do something about it. Now, I've made the point as much as possible. There may be some instances where you can go back and right some of the wrongs that you have done in the past. I've had to do that in my life. It's a very difficult thing to do, but I'll be quite frank, when you finally do it, 
and you write that letter to the person or you send that check for the money you stole from them, whatever it may be, man, it's such an incredible burden. You know you've been forgiven by the Lord, but He just takes it off of you. So there's great freedom in doing that. However, there may be instances where it may not be wise for you to go back. You have an old relationship with an old girlfriend or something like that who's now married and happy and not thinking about you. Please don't call her up. Just let that go. Say, Lord, you take that. Or whatever. You see what I'm, where I'm going with that? There may be some instances where it's not wise for you to go back and correct those things. But many of the little things that we have that are going on in our lives or things that we have dealt with, we can go back and we can make them right. Oh Lord, that's, that's hard. I'll be so embarrassed if I have to go back. I'll have to swallow my pride if I have to go back. You will. You will. And I wrestled with something, I'll tell you here, I wrestled with something for about 10 years that I did when I was about 15 years old, 16 years old. And the Lord was just, now I'm about 30 years old, the Lord is just laying my heart, you need to, no, no, let me, let me correct. At the time of my story, I'm about 30 years old, and the Lord is just sort of, He'd been putting it on my heart, you need to call that guy, you need to write that guy a letter, you need to do this, you need to do that, and I, I just kept putting it off and putting it off, and, and I'd try to forget about it. You know, and then six months later, it all come back again, and you're wrestling with it again. And finally, I wrote the guy a letter. He's not a believer. Wrote the guy a letter. I sent him a check for some stuff that I had done uh, to him in the past. And then I ran into him about uh, three months after that. We had a, we went through basically a funeral together, and I ran into him, and I was like, "Oh no, he's going to beat me up." Robin, stand in front of me, you know, <laughs> or something like that. And he came up to me, and he he. He put his hand out. It was open. I was delighted, not closed. And he shook my hand. He said, you know, I really appreciate you sending that to me you know, and, and, and writing that letter to me and so on and so forth. Uh, it may not go that way for you, but I was delighted that it went that way. Don't just feel bad about it, but do something about it and pray about it. Get, get some counsel. Talk to some other folks because the Lord may have you do something. But notice also this. Notice what it says. He says, just go ahead, return all this stuff to them. And then he says, and do it this very day. Isn't that significant? Yes, it is. I, I raise the questions, I answer them. That's very significant. Do it, he says, this very day. If God brings conviction into your heart, your response has to be immediate. It is a huge mistake to do what I did and put it off for a year, five years, ten years. You need to respond immediately. Saying, you know what, I'm going to deal with this down the road almost always means you're never going to deal with it. And so when God puts a conviction on your heart about sin, you need to deal with it right away. And I like what Nehemiah does here. He lays out steps to repentance. Steps to repentance for these guys and that all of us certainly can look at. Number one is acknowledging your sin. He charges them with their sin. What you are doing is not good. Step number one in repentance is acknowledging your sin. It's simply agreeing. You know what? You're right. I'm not going to defend it anymore. I'm not going to make excuses about it anymore. You know, the, what the Jews were doing was pretty much what the people of Babylon did. And that's where they had lived the last 100 years and they just adopted the ways of the world. But the ways of the world, though it may be acceptable to everyone else, is not necessarily acceptable as far as the Scripture is concerned. And so they have to acknowledge that and they say, you're right, I was wrong. So that's number one, acknowledging your sin. Number two in step to repentance is taking steps where possible to make things right. Returning fields, returning vineyards, and so on. And then the third step is to do so today. Not to put it off, but to do so today. Well, let's see how the people respond. Verse 12, it says, And they said, We will restore these 
and we will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Praise the Lord. So they heard this. They responded. They committed themselves to it. But I appreciate Nehemiah here. He said, oh yeah? Well, prove it. He says, sign here on the dotted line that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. Look at the rest of verse 12. It said, and I called the priests and I made them swear to do as they had promised. So Nehemiah here, he's not going to take, uh, be taken by these guys, simply rest on their promise that they're going to do the right thing. Instead, he calls the priests there as witnesses uh, and makes them, if you will, take an oath to do as they said they were going to do. There's an old Russian proverb, and I'm going to practice Russian here with you. I say practice, I don't know Russian, but phonetics, we're going to give it a shot. There's an old Russian uh, proverb, and I have an opinion of the Russian language. I don't think it's right, but it always feels like they're angry. And so I may come off angry to you. It's dobre no proverie. Now, I'm not the best at accents, I, I admit. Uh, when I do my, my accent of my good friend Tracy Tennant, who's uh, South African slash English, lived in London, it comes out Indian. And my kids are like, that is not how she sounds. So I'm not very good at accents, so you might be agreeing right now. Dovre no proverie. And during the Cold War, President Ronald Reagan, he was known to repeatedly speak those words to his counterpart in Russia, the Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev. And those two men, you may recall, they were hammering out an arms control treaty amongst them. And every time they met, they would meet, and then six months later meet again, and then a year later meet again. Every time they met, Reagan would say, Dovre no proverie. And uh, what's his face? Uh, Gorbachev, that's professional. Gorbachev, <laughs> he says, you like to say that. And he says, I like the, the ring it has, uh, Reagan responded to him. It's a phrase which means trust but verify. So Reagan was willing to trust that Gorbachev would do what he was pledging to do, but at the same time, he was going to hold him to it. And he was going to verify that what he was actually saying he was going to do, he would go and do. And Nehemiah is doing that. He's grateful for their commitment to repent and change, but he was going to verify and make sure they did what they said they were going to do. And notice then, he, he also throws in sort of a dramatic flair to things. He takes the outfit that he is wearing, the garment that he has, and he sort of shakes it out there like you would maybe shake out a tablecloth or something and he sort of shakes it out and he says I shook out the fold of my garment and I said so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise may he be shaken and emptied and notice what the assembly says at the conclusion of verse 13 amen the assembly that had been ripped off here amen and they begin to praise the Lord and then it goes on it says the people did as they promised. So chapter 5 of Nehemiah in so many ways is a sad chapter, but there's hope because we see people repenting, we see people responding to the leading of God, but it's a sad chapter in the history of the returning exiles. And it's sad because a group of leaders came on the scene that began to take advantage of their position and do so for their own benefit, uh, thinking that was a good way to lead. And leadership. And I, and I would certainly say godly leadership. Leadership in the kingdom of God. But really, all leadership is about serving other people for their benefit. And so, if you have an opportunity to be a leader in one way or another, and your goal is to make a name for yourself, or to enrich yourself, or to enhance yourself, then I would say this, please don't bother signing up to lead. Because you've missed the point altogether. 
And one guy who doesn't miss the point here is Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a leader, a godly leader, that realizes that this wasn't about him, but instead it was about the people that he was privileged to lead. And we've read already in verse 11, I'm going to give you some examples of that. Notice what he does Excuse me, in verse 10. It says, moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money. They were loaning money to people that had need. Here, take what you need. Pay me back if you can. Not charging interest, though, like the others were. Not taking advantage of people. Because it wasn't about him getting rich. It wasn't about him making a name for himself. And it wasn't about him creating a legacy for himself. It was about him helping others that were in his care. We see in verse 14 and following that he had a heart to serve the people. Let's look at verse 14. It says, Moreover, from that time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. So the governor, his pay, if, if you will, a portion of his pay, if not his pay, was a food allowance was allotted to him. But what does Nehemiah do? For 12 years, Nehemiah rejects that because he knew the people were not in a place to provide in that way, and so he refused to accept that allotment. Again, this wasn't about him, but it was about the people. They were his chief concern. Look at verse 15. It says, Now the former governors who were before me, they laid heavy burdens on the people, and they took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of our God. And so Nehemiah and those who kind of worked with him, they could have taxed the people heavily. The officials before them did that. It was just sort of what people had gotten used to. But Nehemiah wouldn't do that. And again, he wouldn't do it because it wasn't, excuse me, it wasn't about him, but it was about the people. Nehemiah is not serving himself. He's serving the people. Notice also, as we said earlier in verse 15, he does all this and he acts in this way because he had a fear of the Lord. And Nehemiah didn't want to do anything that would hurt the people or grieve the Lord. And so I'm reminded in the New Testament of just a very practical thing. If you want to keep yourself from sinning against God and sinning against other people, the New Testament breaks it down pretty clearly. We read these words, something to this effect. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's pretty straightforward. You want to keep from sinning against God and sinning against others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's going to keep you from sinning against them. And Nehemiah demonstrates that. And so he doesn't take the food rations, which were rightfully his. He doesn't tax the people as others had been doing. And now notice also in verse 16, Nehemiah doesn't just sit back and let people serve him. But Nehemiah gets right down there with them and it says, I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. He leads by example, he does his part, and all of that for the benefit of other people. Let's pick up. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was an ox, and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. And so take notice here, not only is he not taking, if you will, the food allotment that was rightfully his, 
but also in generosity we see he's providing food and drink out of his own pocket for 150 men from Jerusalem and the sounding, uh, surrounding areas. And he's doing that out of his own pocket. That's the example. This is the example of how a godly leader should act. And, and I'd like to make this point here. Remember, Nehemiah is not the religious leader. So I'm talking about being a godly leader, but I'm not just talking about religious leaders have to be godly leaders. These are, Nehemiah was a political leader. So all of us that name the name of Christ, we are to follow the example that is before us. The principle applies to all of us. So whether we serve in a local government, or we are a business leader of some form, or we serve in a church, or if we're the head of the local PTA, it doesn't matter. Integrity is integrity. And each of us, as his people, are called to live according to that standard. And again, that's the standard that the people were not following, the other leaders were not following. And what the enemy has done here, as he's trying to trip up the work of God, he was able to get in, if you will, behind the ranks, and he was able to influence some key people to abuse their position of power to the point where there was a great outcry. And one of the things, what's missing in chapter 5? What have you not heard anything about in chapter 5? What's the book of Nehemiah about? Rebuilding the wall. Do you hear anything about that in chapter 5? It's not happening. No, you don't. You're so kind. He says, I persevered on the wall. He, uh, he's referring to a time forward. But my point is this, it's not advancing. Where it was in chapter 4 is where it's going to be in chapter 6. And it's because the enemy got into the camp and he distracted the people from what they were trying to do. These leaders were abusing their power. But Nehemiah wouldn't do that. Nehemiah can say with integrity, follow me. And if God has called you to lead in any capacity, whether it's at work or as a teacher, or as a parent, or as a student leader, you need to follow the example of Nehemiah. The position you hold you serve, and you serve in, it exists not for your own benefit, but for the people that you're leading. And leading is to serve. Now, you may not get rich. I don't want to make a comment about our presidents, but I'm going to. Um, it's shocking to me, and it, it doesn't matter if it's George Bush or Bill Clinton or it'll be President Obama when he's out of office. It's shocking to me how wealthy our presidents have become after they get out of office. The regular guys when they get in there, or gals someday when they get in there, but afterwards they're collecting million-dollar checks to give speeches. That's very disappointing, I think. That's all I wanted to say. You may not get rich, you may not get famous from your service, and you may have to make all sorts of personal sacrifices in order that you might lead. And you may have to give and give and give so that others might benefit. But that's what it means to be a true godly leader. And Nehemiah understands that. And Nehemiah lives that. Now, I find I can do that for like a week or two. And I can lead that way. I'm motivated. I come back from a retreat and I'm just ready to serve and give and give and give. And I don't need to get anything in return. But sometimes, maybe you're with me, sometimes you go through those stages you're like, I'm tired of giving and giving and giving. I'm tired of serving and serving and serving. I want to get, I want to get, I want to get something back. Maybe like to sleep in a little. I want one of those kinds of things. And sometimes you're just not as motivated anymore. Well, I would like to look at what Nehemiah then, this I think is the secret for why he could do this for 12 years and if need be, do it for 12 years more. And it's found in verse 19 where he says, remember for my good Oh my God, all that I have done for this people. I think the, the secret, if you will, of why Nehemiah can do what he does, how he does what he does, 
is because he keeps his eyes focused on the Lord. And he knows that, that the Lord is the one who sees what is done in secret and humble sacrifice, and that the Lord will reward that in his timing. may not be here on the earth, but in his timing. And that's the Lord that a truly godly leader pursues. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for the example of Nehemiah. And Father, uh, we confess that we fall short. We confess that maybe not to the degree of some of these other officials, that more often than not, or many times, that we, we tend to be really just looking out for ourselves and what we could get out of this circumstance and and that our service, our leadership of, of people, of uh, our children, whatever it may be, is sometimes a bit selfish and, and uh, askew and off-base. And, and so, Lord, we're reminded when we come to a text like this. We could go the direction of these nobles and officials, or we could go the direction of Nehemiah, Lord. We're, we're just sort of given that example one more time in front of us for us to choose. And, and Lord, I, I'm pretty sure, each of us here, our desire is to be like a Nehemiah. And so, Lord, where necessary today, we confess those areas where we've fallen short. We confess them as sin, Lord. If we need to make it right, Lord, I just pray You would lay that heavily upon our hearts to call that person and apologize or to write that letter or to do that thing that we need to do. And, Lord, that we would have the courage to do it quickly. And so, Father, just in a a few moments of quietness, we invite You to search out our hearts. And Lord, we believe that you hear our prayer and we thank you for your spirit coming and ministering to our hearts. Lord, continue to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.